Startup Heroes podcast. Welcome back to the Startup Heroes podcast, the podcast where we celebrate founders and investors that have done things differently. Hosted by me, Amory Polden. And me, Joshua Minsk. And today we're joined by Connor Sheerhan. Connor is the founder of CKS, an advisory firm focused on fundraising and M&A. Connor started CKS back in 2009 and since 2020 alone has advised on over half a billion dollars in trade sales and helped raise over $125 million for their clients. He has worked with multiple startups all the way from the idea phase to exit and is an active angel investor. He's going to share some of his insights with you today. So sit back and enjoy this episode. So Connor, thanks so much for coming on to the Startup Heroes podcast. Great, great to have you here. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell the audience a little bit about yourself um, and where you've come from? Sure, great. Uh, listen, thanks for having me. My first ever podcast, so I'm kind of extra excited, right? So look, my, my name is Connor Sheehan. I run a small or a boutique, whichever phrase applies, a corporate finance firm in Dublin. I've been in kind of the broad numbers game for 35 years now. I qualified as a chartered accountant, but I realized that I liked the numbers bit and the numerical literacy, but I wasn't really going to be the world's greatest accountant or auditor. They didn't have fancy phrases like corporate finance then. So I worked for a small accounting firm, became a bigger accounting firm, and then Ireland's largest investment bank. So I got into the buying and selling companies, raising money. And one of the things that I loved about that, because I've had some other great experiences, was being part of that kitchen cabinet that helps people get things done. So a founder of a business, you know, it's kind of their life's work or it's the first version of their life's work. It can be quite thrilling, but it's also a huge obligation to help somebody as an advisor with that outcome, be it the first ever small, tiny fundraising they do, be it a massive trade sale outcome. I cottoned on to liking that and I think been pretty good at it early on in my career. And I've had a couple of slots as a CEO, I've been an active non-exec for some companies. But I've come back to this. I set this business up 15 years ago now because I realized I wanted to, you know, hang up my own kind of shingle and do something under it. And that was all about a very active, a very hands-on kind of advisory role, if that makes any sense. And so CKS does both fundraising for all sorts of different shapes and sizes of companies. And you also do M&A sort of acquisition processes, correct? Yes. So, so we, we, I started, so I, as I said, worked in Ireland's largest investment bank. I'd then been lucky enough to run a tech business and we sold that business so i saw where the i suppose where the rubber hits the road in terms of how helpful an advisor can be and what i mean by that is the first time we tried to sell the business uh, i said sure i can do that i've done all that i don't need any help and there is a role no matter what the deal without just being self-serving about it for an advisor to play and uh, I, I really thought about setting up a business that really tried to hone in on that. I suppose going on a journey with, with, with founders, with, with management teams. And some of that means, you know, you might have eternal years of free cups of coffee because, you know, you can't charge for everything because early stage companies, uh, you know, don't have a lot of money. And like one of the best examples for me, I was lucky enough to be part of, a, of selling an Irish company called Box Ever. We sold it to Sitecore last year. Sitecore is EQT backed. I'd known that management team since literally the week they started the business. So we'd had chit chats along the way about, God, it's hard doing this. What do you think about this customer deal? You know, the, the terms of raising money or this, that and the other. We never had a big paid mandate until the end. And that was a really important, you know, life changing outcome for the founders, a huge outcome for the, the investors they had. And we played a really kind of hands on role helping people get the job done. So for example, in the last year, we've done everything from like a 500 grand pre-seed round 
to raising over 40 million for a US UK transportation business. So we've been lucky enough to get involved in a, in a, in a whole gamut of things. And through referrals and through my own network and through contacts and through getting deals done, we've got a lot of work outside of Ireland. So that transportation deal, we were the only Irish thing about that deal, right? We were lucky enough to get referred into the company. The shareholders were brave enough to give us a shot to, to do the work. And then, you know, every, everyone was happy with the outcome. When you look at the big advisory houses, there's some phenomenal talent in there. But a lot of time, it's hard to get all the time and attention you need for all those kind of stopping off points on the journey, if you know what I mean. Like early on, like I was on the phone earlier on to the CEO of a company. I don't even know if they formed the company yet, but I think she's got a great idea. There's an investor in Ireland I've done a lot of work with. You know, I'm giving her that help as if I had a mandate. Uh, she's got no money to pay anyone anything you know, anytime soon. But that might be a really interesting thing in six months, in 12 months. And when it comes time to, to raise money, maybe she'll give me a call back. So that'll be time well spent. That's really interesting, the way the industry works and the way you get into these deals by sowing the seeds over many years. And I suppose that also gives you an insight into how entrepreneurs feel when they're first building out their business. There's like a lot of risk involved. The upside isn't always immediately clear how big of an outcome it's going to be. Do you feel like that helps you relate to founders? It definitely makes you want to work harder. What founders are trying to do, it's the hardest thing in the world. Like who wakes up and says, I'd like to set myself up for 10 years of utter rejection. It's all well and good. And we've all seen it at the end of the movie. You know, someone makes a bunch of money or there's a great outcome, but they forget the 15 years of being an overnight success. Right. And, and I think we try and go on that journey and help where we can, uh, particularly where there mightn't be a mandate involved. No, that all makes perfect sense. I guess the position that you occupy is pretty privileged in terms of the vantage point that you have over the fundraising landscape. I'm really curious, how has the market changed in your view in the last, let's call it nine months? This year has been a pretty big one. Yeah, I've seen it in terms of some of the specific mandates we have. So I was talking to a, a client uh, yesterday, actually, and we were talking about the market changing. And I said, no, my view is the market changed. You know, go back. I don't know, three or four months and it had been changing, kind of teetering, but there, there's been a, you know, a hard stop in terms of number one, some funds just saying, you know what, um, I'm still a believer in what I'm doing, but I'm retrenching for the year. I want to see how things pan out, right? If someone has a great business in October, it'll still be great in February if it was ever great. So I, I look back then, uh, number one. Number two, I want to see what capital I need, you know, above the line for companies I've already invested in, which is, uh, you know, you actually want to see that in terms of funds being responsible. Uh, Elkstone, a local fund, wrote, which I would subscribe to. Um, Irish founders have been slower to come back to earth in terms of valuation, uh, aspirations. A lot of things about Ireland, there's an extra bit of madness plugged in. But I've certainly talked to some founders going, why do you think it's worth X? I'm in the lucky position. I've done enough of this. You know, I have 11 or 12 small, you know, seed startup investments myself. So I see this from, from a couple of sides of the counter. And it's a great question to ask somebody, how are you going to help me go out and get a whole pot of investors and tell them it's worth X? And sometimes that gets down to, well, we did the friends and family round and it was X, so it has to be X plus, right? I'm saying, well, look, probably not a great basis to deal with uh, high net worth investors or early stage or seed investors. So sometimes I think it's very important saying to somebody, I don't think I can raise you money at X. Let's talk about that. Or, 
you see that burn rate have you actually thought through what you're saying is you want to raise money but at the time you'll need more money you're still burning it's become much much harder for companies with the aspirational if i build it they will come but i'll need constant money to keep building it i've often seen plans or decks where people say oh yeah my milestone is i'll, I'll do a you know series a in 10 months and you say okay well what are your business milestones how many customers will have been acquired uh, how will you've grown the mrr and a lot of times there gets a stage where there's a gap in the boring financial stuff i definitely see and we've seen it in two or three deals that we've completed this year it doesn't have to be cfo level financed finance director level but having a really good finance function that understands how the business works what makes money what doesn't make money can be really really important I think sometimes that gets ignored in early stage companies. There's a certain energy in the chaos, but the chaos also needs to have some kind of structure and numbers focus and kind of reality to it. I am fully aligned with you on time-based fundraising. It needs to be thought through far more carefully than that. I'm curious, do you see any difference in terms of demand for sectors in this current market? Are there some sectors in your view that are really flying at the moment and others that are facing massive headwinds either because of the macro or because they were sort of overcooked in previous cycles? Yeah, look, I think the, like anything cyclical, like anything that corrects, you know, valuations go too high and then there's too much of a correction. You know, sentiment goes too high and then it's kind of scaled back too much. I think companies that can actually show Here's how I'm going to generate cash, become profitable, own a market, and, 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 and I can show that that's happening today. And then tactically, if your MRR doesn't start to grow into a bigger ARR number, at some point, people are going to ask, hey, what's the story on you know, your progress, on your numbers, and how all, that, all of that works, right? So a clear understanding of, of how you address the, 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 what you sell into the market you sell it into and being able to really convince people that's the right way and the right focus. You know, I've really seen that work. Something that addresses just straight up B2C, something where people have to bite off on, you'll get me all the way to the consumer's wallet and relieve them of that money. That's just harder and harder. And I, it doesn't mean people don't have great ideas that aren't going to build great companies. What we try and do is focus on the B2B space. We've just started a raise for a really cool e-bike company. So when you say that to people, they think car crash in terms of last mile delivery, right? I, I see it in their eyes as I've been doing the kind of teaser pitches, right? But then you quickly pivot to actually know these guys are B2B. So we have the bikes and we sell the bikes to businesses that need the bikes. And some of the early stage wins that Thomas, the CEO, has had um, are just game changers. But you have to keep people focused on what it is versus what I think it is, right? So they're not getting into, this isn't a dark kitchen business where we're, you know, where the, the groceries are stored. These are the bikes. And we have big contracts with businesses that whatever, whoever wins and loses here, you know, e-bikes are here to stay, for example. So, so I think it also raises the bar around the clarity and the focus that's required in terms of what we're raising what it's for and where it's going to get us to. And correctly, investors have a higher bar for what they're qualifying in to, to look at in terms of really, really thinking about raising the money, right? And, and I think one of the things that guys that go, us help companies with is trying to qualify people in as respectfully in that, if, you know, if somebody has questions and they want their questions answered, that's what we're here to help with process-wise. But you're trying to eliminate tire kicking in a process as, as quickly as you can. That's not first call, second call, but you're really trying to qualify in, you know, after 45 or 60 days, who do I think is really interested here?
that's a very, very important thing for companies. Doing rounds solo, they often go on forever. This is a really interesting point because um, the topic of running a fundraising process is, is a bit of a thorny one. So you see plenty of commentators recommending it. But I think there's also a perception among some founders that running a process is a luxury that only very sort of in-demand companies can actually do. And for everyone else, you're not really in control of your destiny. You're probably going to dispute that. I'd love to hear your counter-argument as to how a reasonable, but perhaps not in the hottest market, etc., early stage company can actually run a formal process. Yeah, the, the ultimately, like any try, any kind of sale process, you know, you're you're trying to be bought and not not sell. A good founder for me would be somebody who has already talked multiple times to most of the list that you might go to when you run a process. If I'm going to somebody and it's the first time they're hearing about a business, that's probably not the start off that I want. As I say to founders, post kind of early stage funding, you know, might be helping them with the the, the Series A kind of the three to kind of eight million kind of space. The exact perfect list of who we should go to probably doesn't exist. And the, the art of getting there, it's not a competition, it's a collaboration. So as, as the advisor, I'll have some great ideas. The company would have some great ideas. Uh, I think it's, it's actually really important for companies and a lot of boards are now coming around to this where they're suggesting to the founding team, maybe do go and get some help for a couple of points on a success basis, right? Does it, in, does it increase the chances of success? Well, I think it does, right? And it does because you've got somebody who's completely symbiotically linked with the founders, the board, the team, the existing shareholders on the outcome. You've got somebody who, if you do your diligence and always talk to a, a couple of parties, this is what they do. All day, every day, we are starting in the middle of or completing funding process. So you have a sense for the vast amount of work that it takes, right? Getting the go-to-market materials ready. And a lot of companies go, oh, no, no, I, I have all that. And one of my favorite things is, and I've had it with, we've closed three rounds in the last month, uh, uh, a million to eight million is the spread. When we started those rounds, I said to all of the founders, I'm a big fan of dry runs. So you got to step up, stand up in my conference room. I know you don't want to because we're all human and give me the pitch. And some of them say, absolutely not. I say, well, look, Bono does a sound check. Every gig he does, right? There's a reason for that, right? Everybody needs to practice. And I suppose be humble enough to actually say, I have to do this practice, but be focused enough on, I need to get this right. This might be my one shot with my ideal investor. Why would I not do a dry run? I record a founder's dry run and I listen to it, I watch it, I practice it. Because if I get 10 minutes trying to second pitch or third pitch a guy who might, maybe has some doubts or comes, comes back and said, actually, that wasn't as cool as I thought, or I think he missed a bit here. You know, what do you think? What am I trying to do? I'm trying to get the next meeting. I'm trying to move them along in a process if they're a qualified party. And whatever it takes to do that, we're trying to do. So I think the... The, for, for, the, for the cost, right, which is largely success-based, right, let's face it, uh, I, I think it's a really smart thing to do. And sometimes when you see companies doing it on their own, uh, they will look back and say, okay, I get it. I see why that little bit of help might have been useful. Yeah, I think um, that, and that message of laying the groundwork and putting in the prep ahead of actually launching that fundraising conversation is really, really sound advice. How should founders really try and create that magic, that magic momentum during a process? Because as we all know, that FOMO, that sense of sort of inevitability of a fundraise getting done is often what just pulls people over the line and forces people to get off the fence. Yeah, look, it's a great question. And, and if I had the answer, you know, we'd, we'd all bottle it and we'd be a lot richer, right? So, so, so I think it's, it's that moment where you're 
45 to 60 days in, you've done 60 pitches, 20 guys have come back, there's 10 people doing a lot of work, there's five now in the data room. So we're trying to build that momentum in the process. We're trying to respectfully manage the, you know, hey, any questions on the first pitch? Do you want to go down to the management team level? Do you want need any extra data? After a couple of weeks, if somebody's not coming back talking to you, well, you probably know that you might need to qualify them out, right? So, so we we try, if there's, if there's three people on my team, myself and two others working on a sizable fundraising, and there's, you know, 60 parties, 90 parties in the initial outreach. So we'll take a third each, and then we're marshalling them down to the qualifying them in. Something I've learned in particular, you need to give people enough data to make a reasonable assessment that they like it and they're in. Sometimes, slightly high-handed, this is the process letter, this is the date by which I need, you know, all of this stuff. It, it's, it's, it has to be a more organic conversation. So we try and give a qualified party, momentum-wise, every single bit of reasonable data they will ask for. And so in general, company won't have all that. So there's one of the things that the prep and the advisor helps with. Can I have this data? Yes, number one. Number two, the CEO, they need to build that relationship with the investor. They need to build that excitement in terms of saying, look, here's where I've taken it to. Here's where I am now. Here's what I want the, this money for. I want you to sign on to help me with, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? I've come to you because I think you're going to be great at this, this, and this. And that sometimes comes out of the conversation. You know, hey, Mr. Investor, what do you think you can help me with? Let's respect the fact they're going to bring a big ball of money to start with, right? Because that, that will juice all of the, the business actions the company can take. And then sometimes you say to the founder, great, what gets you to that excited point of this is the girl I want, this is the guy I want in terms of my investor? And actually gut checking and asking those questions, a lot of which are very basic questions. Did you like them? Did you talk to three CEOs of recent investments? And do you think they were honest with you? You know, because no relation, every relationship will have had highs and lows. Our job now is to try and help get as much data, but help the CEO with their own process around the judgment bit and the gut feel piece, right? Because that's a, that's a hard thing to do. One of the things I think where an advisor is, is especially helpful on fundraising is this point where a venture-backed business more naturally becomes a private equity backed business. I'm really interested in this point because growth VC and private equity, to me, these days cross over massively, right? There's a real Venn diagram between the two. One of the things I think an advisor can help with is actually pointing you in the right direction in terms of these are a better set of backers for you and for your business at this stage in its life. And I guess, what do you look for as an advisor in a business that says, okay, this is a company that should continue down this this growth VC path, and we're going to go there. And this is a business that would be better suited to private equity. There's a huge blurring of those lines, uh, as I see it, right, in terms of the, when I've you know, approached various companies about various processes. I've had what I would consider to be you know, late-stage venture, i.e. we will still fund losses, probably not actually come across as that. And I've had PE guys, you know, bulge bracket PE guys who were with a good plan, with the right story, with the eye on the outcome, probably willing to fund, you know, losses for longer than I thought, right? So without being one dimensional about it, sometimes there's the crossover, say that, that a guy like me would look for. I mean, ultimately, you know, the best PE stories are where they've helped companies with huge inorganic growth. So they like the team, but they're actually saying a huge part of how we get from here to there is M&A. So let me walk you through how we think that might work in your case, you know, as a business, right? Gavin Cooney, who I know you had on a, on a podcast, I was chair of his company for eight years. Gavin, Mark, his co-founder, completely understood that when somebody like Battery comes in, 
that was going to be about inorganic growth and a journey that, as it's turned out for them, they've really, really enjoyed staying on. So I think the P guys that can take you through the, you know, profitable growth phase where they're going to try and tack on, help you tack on other things to the business and classically achieve one and one actually is more than two. I think that intersection is really interesting. And I mean, something that we've heard on this podcast and also through other conversations is running a dual process, uh, running an acquisition process. And in some cases, you're running a capital raise process at the same time in conjunction with one another and kind of going through this exploratory journey of figuring out which is going to be best for your business by fleshing it out. Where do you kind of land with that? Do you think it's an efficient and worthwhile process to run? Do you think that founders should kind of go out and, you know, with a clear idea? of which they're, they're planning on doing. How do you think about that? Well, look, I, so I'd be a huge fan of that because in the market we're in, big or small today, uh, outcomes are just less certain. So if you put all your eggs into the basket of I'm selling and for whatever reason, that process doesn't turn out to be what you want it to be, right? that is such a downer for a company, right? It just, it has sucked the life out of a company for three, six months. Whereas along the way to you know, in terms of that sale process, if you're also talking to people who can fund that next stage of growth, so you're also having the funding conversation, it's actually great to have the confidence to step back and work on those two options. And one of the favorite things for me is if a company's had any level of inbound, so they've had some approach by a potential suitor, I think there's huge, huge merit in at that point looking at every other potential suitor and at the funding options, right? We, we call it the kind of the reluctant bride speech uh, in-house, if you're still allowed to say that, which is, hey, we're not selling, we're building a business, enter the funding conversations we're having. But Johnny has knocked on the door. So you know what? We'd be foolish not to have this conversation. If you have an interest in having the conversation, let's discuss. So when someone's knocked on the door, that's a great opportunity to look at, okay, do I want to sell? And if I do, let's include other people in the process. Or do I want to go again? Because I have a number of clients and I'm always happy to help someone sell their business and listen to instruction because I know my place. But sometimes I'll start with, is it too early to sell? Why sell now? If you want to get a few bob off the table to build a house, pay off some debt, great. We can look at some primary and some secondary. Why don't we fund kind of for global domination to at least pique the interest in, their, in the conversation, right? It doesn't mean they'll change their mind, right? But if somebody's come in and made an approach uh, I think that's a great time to then stand back and go, okay, I can sell. And there's a number where I'll definitely sell. Let's run a process around that. But let's look at how I'd fund to grow. And that's where, uh, you know, a majority, you know, PE deal might be the, the best thing to do. So a PE company will come in, fund the company, grow the company, but the founders can take a ton of money off the table. So they get the best of both worlds, right? So there's actually kind of three options in there. One is, you know, sell, one is just fund, and the one in the middle is, well, sell a bit. So you're de-risking and taking some money off the table. And, and I think that attitude around secondaries is evolving in the venture space in Europe as well. I think we're still a long way behind the US, but it's catching up. And I think most venture investors in Europe these days will look at the founder taking a bit of money off the table and say exactly that, that it's actually going to help them solve their day-to-day -day life challenges, pay their mortgage, etc. And it's going to give them that fire in the belly to create an even larger business. You see that also with second-time founders that have had a successful exit, the business that they want to then create is, is usually a much, much, much larger idea because again they're safe financially and uh, and they want to kind of roll the dice a little bit more Th thinking then about that M&A process there's two different thoughts of logic here in terms of how close you should be staying to your potential acquirers and I think you mentioned earlier that you're a big advocate of 
companies and management teams staying close and talking to their potential acquirers throughout that sort of journey. I guess there's some risks and some trade-off with that. And, and some founders would feel a little bit anxious about opening the kimono, as it were, constantly to their potential acquirers. How do you think through that? Is that sort of overblown? Should people just say, okay, over-communicate, over-communicate, stay in their face? Yeah, look, there's always the concern around if the potential acquirer is also a direct competitor, I don't want them just getting a pile of data and everything else. Oftentimes, there can be a healthy, and just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're wrong, but a healthy level of paranoia with founders. You know, this is their baby, they built it up, I don't want any you know risk coming in. And sometimes if we're on a journey with a company where before we get to a transaction where we're in constant contact, you know, thinking about ideas, bringing them ideas, they'll bounce stuff off us. We're kind of saying, in one sense, having a kind of an anonymized data room without being too kind of boring about it is always a great thing. So somebody, for the purpose of an M&A conversation, says, well, I want a bit of de- detail on your, you know, your top five, your top 10 customers or rep efficiency or whatever it might be. Great. Do it once properly and then update it and then anonymize it, right? So it's very easy to quickly see who is a time-wasting tire kicker in terms of a potential acquirer. So if somebody asks for a medium level of data and you're able to give that to them in a way with an NDA in place that seems appropriate, if a process doesn't then kick on, well, that's what they were doing. They were tire kicking. So next time they come back around, you'll probably be and rightly so, more wary of that, right? But I do think it is a probably required, definitely healthy thing for founders and CEOs and companies to understand who are the list of people who might ever want to acquire me and why am I a good fit for them? Why would they want to buy me? I'm in one bit of the business, they have the other bit. That's why it's complementary. And a lot of times, Having those conversations with the other CEO, with the other teams can be a healthy thing because you'll learn a lot, understand what's impactful in terms of the acquisition thesis, uh, in terms of your own business model. I'm rolling out a new product. Oh, they're not going to like that. Or they are going to like that, right? Do I sell to a lot of common customers, right? You know, so all of the, the, those nitty gritty kind of detailed things, right? Paying that some heed along the way can really prepare you when the conversation starts. And then I'm I'm trying to sort of draw things together a little bit. If you had to highlight, and we've touched on some of these trends already, but if you had to highlight for, you know, for maybe for an early stage founder, for a sort of seed stage founder thinking about their next fundraise, what is what is the sort of the real differentiators? If you had to pick kind of two or three between the the absolute best in class that you've seen and worked with, and the sort of the the rest of the pack. Yeah, and and look, some of this is, is extremely basic really understanding how your business works, where you make money, who your good customers are, and who your less than good customers are. It's amazing to me the level of detail sometimes that founders and teams don't have. They're busy. They're trying to do a million and one things. So really understanding what makes your own business tick and then having a really basic but thoughtful view on this is what I'm going to spend the money on and this is where I think it gets me. Hey, I want to raise 10 million fours for sales and marketing. Okay, is that for sales or for marketing? Uh, well, two and two. Okay. The two in sales. How many? Is that FTEs? Is that salespeople? Is that, what geographies is that? And how does that actually work, right? The number of times in the first 10 minutes of the hard fought presentation where people are mumbling and stuttering over the what's the money for is amazing to me. You know, people talk about the cost of acquiring the customer, right? The most overused vernacular in kind of SaaS land forever. Great. What does that mean? How much does it actually cost you to acquire a customer? How do you measure that, right? What costs do you exclude and and, and include? And over time, really understanding, well, that's when I will break even on a customer. 
it's a bit shorter than I thought, it's a bit longer than I thought, right? So really having a handle and the person across the table saying, look, I think this guy or gal really knows how their business works and having a defined thesis that you are gutturally connected with for if I get this money, here's where I'm going to spend it and here's what it's going to do. I've got three reps, I need 10. I've done this with three. So even marking it down a little, here's where I'll be MRR, ARR wise with 10. Any questions? And again, they're two very basic things. Seven, eight times out of 10, when a founder walks in, they don't have a good handle on that, right? And that's the start of the journey where we're here, here to help them get that as right as possible so they can quickly get onto the, who do I want to build my investor relationship with? That's a really interesting point. One of the questions in my mind right now, given the current funding environment, do you think startups that are cash flow positive at the moment should be thinking about deferring their capital raise? Or do you think they should just raise in the current environment, lower their expectations of what they're going to get, and kind of just, you know, pursue growth? So I think sometimes the luxury of that decision will now have been taken away from companies because the funding markets are harder. But if you're raising money, you need to be realistic about the dilution that's there, the control that you seed. Uh, and they can be both good things in terms of if the, if the investor brings enough with it that the pie gets bigger. But in general, you know, if you can bootstrap in a cash flow positive way, continue to bootstrap and grow. Sit back as a, as a founder with your advisors, your board, whoever you've got on board to help you sit back and go, what are the upsides of raising this money? And what are the potential downsides in, in a valuation sense? It requires a thoughtful approach to how will the maths work, right? And there's no crystal ball. So you have to sit down and scenario out do I think there's enough in this for me to raise the money and dilute? Will the prize be bigger, right? And in this market, with the, some of the terms and valuations that people, investors are extracting, I'm not sure this is the market to bravely raise money when you don't absolutely need to. Yeah, and I think there's two sides to that though, isn't it? Because there's the element of, okay, terms of hardened, but I equally think like that, the biggest benefit in my mind about this current market is that founders, I think, are being more thoughtful about how they raise capital versus the sort of the exuberance of 2020 and 2021, where it was just, you know, money sloshing around. I think now founders are actually going back to basics and thinking about, okay, what do I need to get me to that next milestone? And can I skip around here? Can I make this round slightly smaller? You hit on a great word there, need. I like people to show me a business plan that's, you know, not skin to the bone need, but I can get through getting X, Y, and Z done, bit of contingency on X. I don't need some of the larger, I don't need a 2 million contingency. I don't need to move that office. I don't need to do that brand campaign. If you're cash positive and you're not constrained, right? I've got one client where I think I figured out they're actually constrained from selling and from growth by not having capital. I said, listen, I think we need to go and look at both the equity and debt markets and see what we can get related to the current capital stack and what we need and what it's for and all the specifics. But if you're not constrained, I think I would continue bootstrapping and growing because I think you're going to enhance value as a founder by doing that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a perfect, perfect message to uh, to end on and couldn't agree more. Connor, thank you so, so much for, for lending us your time, especially on your break. No problem. Thanks a million, guys. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Connor, for talking to us today. Now it's time to walk through our lessons learned from the pod. Number one, fundraising objectives. In the current market, fundraising targets need to be a function of clear business milestones and never just time-based milestones. By all means, budget for time, but it's critical to have a clear narrative on where each dollar of funding is going and where it gets you. It's not enough to go for a four million pound seed because that's what your competition did. Number two, data. 
When you're going through a fundraise, give people enough data to make an informed decision. Try and give a qualified party every piece of data they could need to get them to a yes. This is where having a dry run with existing investors or close advisors can help you pin down exactly what you need to include. Number three, thinking ahead. Connor is in the camp of staying close to your potential acquirers. Ask yourself the question, who are my potential acquirers and why would they want to buy me? The answer should help you articulate what is impactful for your acquisition thesis, but also your business model and where the opportunities lie. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, hit like and subscribe, and we'll see you next time.